Hi everyone, welcome back to China in the Caribbean podcast. In this episode, I'm having a chat with Lev Nachman, a PhD candidate at UC Irvine. His research focuses on the relationship between social movements and political parties, with a special regional focus on Taiwan and Hong Kong. And he's currently on the ground in Taiwan. Cross-strait relations do feature prominently in Caribbean foreign policy, given that the region has quite a high proportion of Taiwan allies. So we cannot really discuss China in the Caribbean without thinking seriously about Taiwan. So having said that, this is the first part of a series that I'll be doing that has a special focus on Taiwan. So I really hope you enjoy this conversation. You're not for oxys, who the general issue in a warning boy. Waving the banner red, green, and gold. It is such a unapproved season for discovered on stones and trees and scrolls. And even in the stories that Jesus told. So, Lev, one of the things I want to know is how does Taiwan think about its formal allies, and in particular, how it thinks about the Caribbean. I think、uh, a lot of people don't realize that. Five of Taiwan's fourteen former allies are here in the Caribbean.、Uh, those are Saint Lucia, Saint Kitts and Nevis, Saint Vincent and Grenadines, Belize, and Haiti. And for that reason, obviously, cross-strait relations does play out in the Caribbean, not to a whole big extent, but certainly non-trivial. So, do does do do Taiwanese politics domestically? Say anything about the Caribbean, or how do they even think about allies in general? I mean, if you really wanted to embarrass me as a Taiwan scholar, you could totally put me on the spot and ask me to name Taiwan's fourteen like diplomatic allies, and I probably couldn't.、Um, uh, it's just it's such not part of the discourse. It only ever comes up when Taiwan loses one,、uh, and you know it's very interesting because. Taiwan is a very interesting way to kind of think about the importance of formal diplomatic allies, because Taiwan has a lot of informal diplomatic allies. For example, it still trades with the United States. It still trades with countries all over the EU. It trades with practically everyone. It's one of,、uh, you know, one of the largest economies in the world. It's got a population of 23 million people. Its economy and population are the size of Australia, and yet it doesn't really have that many formal diplomatic allies. So what does that really say about the importance of formal diplomatic allies? I think that's kind of a、uh, one of the kind of bigger questions to think about when you think about this question of、uh, Taiwan's very few allies.、Uh, and you know, and that does not to say that Taiwan, you know, is, should abandon all of its formal diplomatic allies. I think you know the ones that Taiwan can maintain are good. But you know, whenever one does switch from、uh, ROC to PRC, which happens. Every now and then,、uh, it becomes a bit of a PR crisis domestically, briefly,、um, or at least it can become one.、Uh, I remember,、uh, 
you know, the last time a ally switched to PRC, uh, it was during the middle of, of kind of the election cycle, and it got kind of overshadowed by domestic election news. Um, so it kind of depends on timing. Um, but but again, like if you go and ask Taiwanese people, do you know who your formal diplomatic allies are? Uh, I I would I would uh, kind of guess that most would not be able to name more than a few. Okay, so you mentioned a a cool point. What theoretically speaking, you can ask. Well, what's the point of formal allies? You can use the Taiwan passport to get into the U.S. You can uh, Taiwan still trades fine with the U.K. and the EU and so on. But theoretically speaking, do you think that Taiwan's formal allies could go to zero and it wouldn't actually affect Taiwan that much? I yeah, it could. And and this is, you know, this would be a very interesting moment in history if that were to happen, because if Taiwan was to have zero formal diplomatic allies, nothing would change. Literally nothing. Because the US the US Taiwan relationship is not contingent upon Taiwan's number of formal allies. Uh you know, the Taiwan's ability to have, you know, productive democratic institutions is not dependent on formal diplomatic allies. Uh, you know, all of Taiwan's success uh can continue whether or not it has, you know, official friends or if all of its friends are unofficial. Okay, that's pretty that's pretty interesting. Because if you think about let's say other contested states like Palestine or Somaliland, then if you use Taiwan's like a, a benchmark, then you could say well, what's the point of this, you know, allies and so forth? Why not just focus on nation building? Right. So this is what gets very interesting is uh this the importance of recognition. Which I would never say recognition doesn't matter. Like Taiwan is only able to enjoy this kind of lack of recognition because it has such a long uh, history of, dem- of you know successful democratization and strong institutions. Uh, and it, but it's and, not that long, right? It's like what forty years. Uh, you know, when we think about kind of Taiwan's formation of its institutions, I actually start dating it back to uh, the Japanese colonial era uh, because a lot of education, land reform, uh, you know railroads being built, uh, you know, wells being dug, schools being built, etc. That all started way back when, and that it's this kind of long, long, slower process that allowed Taiwan to have such robust institutions today. Of course, democracy is only 30 years old, but of course, democracy didn't just naturally happen one day. Again, it's kind of uh, part of this longer process. Um, and, you know, whether or not uh, cont- other contested states can follow in Taiwan's tracks and kind of enjoy being able to exist without the need of formal diplomatic allies, you know, Taiwan, it's, it's not necessarily a given, but I think, uh, Taiwan can still tell us a lot about what might happen for the future of contested states if they're able to develop in a similar fashion of like Taiwan. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. That, that feeds into my next question pretty well. I'm wondering why the unification debate in Taiwan is still so central to politics. You mentioned that the, institutions are developed they're um, they're stable i can have some intuition behind it of course but maybe you can kind of explain why it is the case still that the unification debate is still raging yeah so uh taiwan is a is a state that uh is grouped in with what we would consider a contested state contested meaning uh it has some degree of de facto sovereignty over its territory uh, but it's claimed by a quote-unquote parent country uh, who does not want it to become a fully de jure sovereign country. 
Uh, and it's this contested status that leads it to become unrecognized by most countries, by the international system. Uh, but importantly, it also uh, influences its domestic politics. So, you know, every country needs to be able to answer like two fundamental questions. Who are we and where are we? And Taiwan can't do that yet because it's still debating who its people are and where exactly it is. Is it in Taiwan? Is it in the Republic of China? Uh, and until it can really figure those questions out, you know, every other kind of important political decisions is going to feel a little bit secondary or at the very least every other political decision is going to get filtered through those two key questions as well. Uh, and this is, a, this is something we see in most contested states, whether, um, we think about, uh, Nagorno-Karabakh, uh, or Palestine or Somaliland, uh, you know, these are states who are still trying to address the most fundamental questions of, of where is our territory and who are our people, uh, and what are we going to do about the parent country that is, uh, trying to, um, control the narrative about our sovereignty. Uh, and that's why Taiwan is uh, forever going to be stuck on this independence unification issue until it's, contest its contested status is kind of resolved. Um, and when you, the most important underlying political question is independence unification, uh, that's going to be the thing that people talk about the most. And that, that we know from, from good political science uh, uh, survey data in Taiwan that it is, in fact, the unification independence question that is the most important political question um, for every election since democratization. Hmm. Okay, so how does this map onto the current major political parties? I, I think the KMT is pro-unification, or more so, and then the DPP is more uh, pro-independence. So is that fair to say? Yeah, so I, 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 you know, the the history of the DPP is is quite interesting, and it's something I write about for my dissertation. But you know, they they their stance on independence has has kind of grown and shrunk and grown and shrunk. Uh, currently, the DPP is not formally pro independence, meaning they don't advocate for the uh, for Taiwan to uh, uh, claim de jure uh, sovereignty as the state of Taiwan. Um, uh, nor do they seek to change any sort of constitution. Uh, or any, have any sort of major systemic changes within Taiwan. Instead, the, the DDP and actually the KMT, their, their platform is very similar as well, is that Taiwan is already an independent state, uh, called the Republic of China. Um, and, you know, this is what we would call a pro status quo stance, meaning that it, it's not really changing Taiwan's contested status because, uh, the Republic of China is exactly the state that's contested by the People's Republic of China and kind of globally what people debate about whether or not there is one China uh, or, you know, who is the legitimate governing body of this kind of imagined China. Um, and uh, anyway, so, so the, the DPP, uh, many people claim the DPP to be pro-independence. They used to be pro-independence. They haven't been pro-independence in quite some time. I wrote a piece in The Diplomat with a co-author of mine named Brian Hugh, where we actually go into uh, why exactly it is President Tsai Ing-wen and her party are not pro-independence, and why this isn't necessarily even a bad thing. Uh, you know, her ability to maintain the status quo uh, as the Republic of China while still creating space for Taiwan internationally is is, is uh, quite amazing as as a, as a leader uh, of a contested state. Now, meanwhile, the KMT historically has been more leaning towards unification because, you know, one day that historically their their dream has been to go back to China and be the legitimate governing body. Uh, now, formally, that's no longer officially part of the KMT's goal. They 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 no longer um, 
you know, immediately claimed to be uh, uh, trying to go back to govern uh, uh, what they would consider mainland China. Uh, and, you know, instead, you know, they also do not want to become immediately absorbed into the People's Republic of China. They also would prefer to maintain the ROC as it exists. Um, their current party chair, Johnny Chiang, regularly also kind of uses this language of, uh, we are the Republic of China, um, and that is our official moniker, and we will govern according to the Republic of China rules, um, which is another kind of status quo, meaning that they're not trying to be unified by the People's Republic of China. They're trying to main- maintain this ROC framework as well. Um, and, you know, the big difference is that, it, you know, there are different kinds of status quo. So, you know, in, in Taiwanese politics, it, it, it's a spectrum. So you have independence, status quo in the middle and unification on the right. Uh, and there is no one interpretation of independence. There is no one interpretation of unification. There's no one interpretation of status quo. Instead, uh, these things are a spectrum. And the DDP status quo is we're the Republic of China, but we're trying to create space uh, that can give Taiwan more autonomy, more sovereignty, uh, with the hopes that in the future we can resolve this contested question. But in the meantime, we're going to maintain this Republic of China framework. The KMT stance is we're the ROC uh, we want to maintain our status as the ROC and not become absorbed by the People's Republic of China, but we would like to maintain good relations with the People's Republic of China. So in the hope in the future, uh, down the line, maybe we can have some sort of closer relationship. But in the meantime, we want to maintain our uh, uh, de facto separation as the Republic of China separate from the People's Republic of China. So Tsai uh, Ing-wen, when she became, when she won the election, was that more of a movement against did the KMT or were people just much more uh, into the DPP at the time? Uh, it's much more the first one. So, you know, something that's very important that, uh, you know, we, we largely forget because of how much Tsai Ing-wen wins by uh, is that there's a very big difference between voting for Tsai Ing-wen for president and supporting the DPP. Uh, those are kind of two separate things because uh, in Taiwan, uh, they have what's called a, uh, a um, mixed electoral system. So there's both first-past-the-post voting, but there's also uh, uh, proportional representation voting. Um, for the co- So uh, when you vote in Taiwan, you vote three times. You vote for your president, you vote for your district uh, representative, and then you vote for whichever party you like the most. And it's that party vote that is particularly insightful as to how people feel about political parties in Taiwan. So, for example, in the 2020 election this last year in January, Tsai Ing-wen won by a lot. She won eight and a half million votes. The KMT candidate won five and a half million votes. Uh, but if you look at the party vote, the DPP actually tied the KMT in the party vote. They both got 30%. Uh, and this number is very important because that tells us a couple of things. One, it tells us people most certainly want Tsai Ing-wen as president. They most certainly do not want Hong Goyu as president. But they don't necessarily feel great about the DPP. Uh, they most then they also don't feel most certainly don't feel great about the KMT. Uh, but really, that number tells us that there's a lot of demand in Taiwan for other parties beyond the DPP and the KMT because you know beyond those uh, those two parties, that last thirty plus percent uh, in Taiwan went to third parties. Um, oh, okay. So why is that? Why are third parties that big hmm. in Taiwan? So in the Caribbean, third parties are meaningless. That could just be a result of the first past the post system in the Caribbean. But in, in Taiwan, is it because people are just like tired of the worn out DPP, KMT rhetoric? Or is it something else pushing them towards 
came, uh, the new third parties? Uh, it's a couple of different things. There's kind of two important spectrums to think about. First, there's, you know, of course, uh, the unification independence spectrum. So people do prefer a more uh, overtly pro-independence political party. At least a lot of young people prefer a more overtly pro-independence political party. Uh, and you have political parties like the New Power Party, like the Taiwan State Building Party, um, who are uh, overtly pro-independence, um, who say verbatim, we are pro-independence. The DPP doesn't say they're pro-independence. Um, they're very careful about the language they use. You know, they, they specifically say Taiwan is already independent as the Republic of China as a means to kind of both establish themselves as a, as a de facto separate state from the PRC, while also not completely claiming that Taiwan as Taiwan is a separate country. Um, meanwhile, you have a lot of people that are just looking for what they would consider a more clean political party. So the DPP and KMT both have histories of corruption, especially the KMT given its historic authoritarian past. Um, and there's just a lot of, uh, demand for different players, uh, in, in, uh, to be in the political game. Uh, and that goes for people on the more pro-unification side as well. Um, you have the new uh, political party called the Taiwan People Party, Taiwan 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 People's Party. I forget where the S goes. Um, and uh, you know they're they're not pro-unification, but they're not they're 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 much more kind of middle ground pro-status quo, leaning towards a uh, more blue, meaning more pro-KMT um, set of politics. Um, so, for example, Terry Goh, uh, the, the CEO of Foxconn, uh, who was trying to run under the KMT, uh, ended up switching his support to the, D the TPP uh, this last election. Um, that's a longer story. But, but the, you know, the important point is, is that, uh, you know, there, there's, there's a lot of demand for third parties in Taiwan. Um, and, you know, it's because uh, a lot of, you know, when I, I, the general uh, – public. I, you know, I can't say exactly why the average person wants them, but I can tell you from my own research working with activists uh, that a lot of people see the DPP as obviously better than the KMT, and given a choice between DPP and KMT, they will always pick DPP. Um, but that is not really the same thing as saying, I support the DPP, their policies, their party, their politics, um, because a lot of younger Taiwanese want someone who's both more progressive, or pro-independence, uh, more transparent, um, and these are things that the DPP is not particularly great about these days. Of course, the KMT is infinitely worse. But you know, when you're a pro, you know, more pro Taiwan person, you're the you're going to be holding the DPP to to a high standard. Mm. Okay, so the the independent versus unification debate cannot be like the only main issue when it comes to voting in Taiwan. So, and obviously, you mentioned that this year, uh, Tsai Ing Wen won a large proportion of the votes, you know, for herself at least. So what other like big issues are like in the political climate in Taiwan? Yeah, so so you know, I know it seems overstated to say that people only care about unification independence, but that's really kind of the big thing people care about. Especially in twenty twenty, that's really what people were voting on. Um especially, you know, because it was framed uh as Tsai Ing-wen was the one defender of Taiwan's autonomy and sovereignty, and the KMT was going to give that sovereignty away to China. That's really what the, the election How, how true is like. that still? But... Uh, oh, I mean, that was very, like, kind of election rhetoric. Uh, it was blown... I mean, it's all, it's, all, it's election season, so, you know, every politician's going to overstate and dram dramatize everything, dramatize everything. That's probably the right word. 
Um, but for, you know, example, in Taiwan, you had, you know, because of the Hong Kong protests uh, in particular, that kind of gave the DPP a very powerful frame to say, look at Hong Kong. The KMT is going to let Taiwan become like Hong Kong, and we're not going to let Taiwan become like Hong Kong. Uh, and that was that was a central frame to Tsai Ing-wen's entire election uh, strategy. Um, but, you know, but you're not wrong. Like, there are people that vote on other issues like economy uh, or, you know, just policy that is not related to unification, independence, housing, taxes, etc., um, what's, uh, what's complicated with things like economy is that often gets filtered through the lens of unification independence. So for example, uh, you know, a lot of people will say, well, we need to fix the economy. We need to fix the economy by increasing trade with China because they're such a natural trading partner. Now, if you're very pro trade with China, that likely also says something about how you feel about unification independence. And if you're saying, well, we can't be too reliant on China, that's bad for Taiwan's economy, we need more diverse trading partners, and we need to focus less on trade with China, that probably also says something. And that's that's what I mean by kind of, you know, even even if we're not talking directly about unification independence, so many political issues here still will always get filtered through that lens. Okay, so also, Taiwan has islands around it as well. So, there's also Penghu, which has about the same population as St. Vincent and the Grandees in the Caribbean. As, like also St. Vincent, it is also like an archipelago of islands. I'm wondering how these islands think about politics in hmm, mainland Taiwan. And how does mainland Taiwan politics also think about these islands as, as well? I'm not sure if you know about how this works out there. So, you know, that's that's a very good question. So, you know, there's a lot of variation with how different islands feel about Taiwan and China. The biggest, you know, kind of contrasts I think that you point out are Penghu and, and uh, Jinmen or Kinmen. Uh, so Penghu is kind of a, a traditionally votes green for the DPP. The DPP pro-independence groups most certainly include Penghu uh, within kind of their future independent Taiwan. But Jinmen is a different story. So people in Jinmen... Uh, feel very excluded from the Taiwanese mainland. And they feel much more sympathetic to China because of proximity, the amount of resources that uh, that uh, Jinmen gets from Taiwan. Um, and interestingly, some, uh, you know, definitely not the DPP, but some uh, kind of more outspoken pro-independence groups don't even include Jinmen in their kind of uh, uh, future pro-independent, uh, uh, their future plans of an independent Taiwan. Um, there's some great, because re- uh, they see it as a uh, more part of China than Taiwan, uh, or at the very least, they see it as kind of uh, a part of Taiwan that the KMT brought over, uh, and that is not kind of quote unquote naturally part of Taiwan. Um, and uh, there's there's a lot of good reporting by uh, by Chris Horton uh, on Jinmen that is worth looking into that kind of explores uh, kind of this kind of complicated narrative about how people in Jinmen feel about Taiwan, how they feel about the DPP, how they feel about the KMT, and how they feel about China, because uh, Jinmen is kind of a great, very kind of microcosm of very, very complex Taiwanese identity on top of already a very complex Taiwanese identity. Hmm. Okay, so how is Taiwan history taught in primary and secondary school there? Because uh, last year I was in... And I went to this nondescript museum. And it was actually a Guomindang museum. Oh, and interesting. I think, 
I, I very much doubt that they bring, like, um, school kids there to kind of see the history and so on. I was actually very surprised to find it. So are Taiwanese kids thought about the, you know, the white terror or the early Guomindang history there? So that's a good question. So it changes based off of kind of the generation. So there was massive education reform in the year 2000 under President Chen Shui-bian. Uh, and before then, it was largely focused on Chinese history with very little uh, given, uh, very little time given to Taiwan's own history. Uh, but after the year 2000, uh, there was a kind of new emphasis on teaching Taiwanese history. Uh, and, you know, that kind of waned a little bit under Maing Zhou. Uh, and I'm fairly certain it's still now back to being more uh, Taiwan-centric uh, now that uh, the TPP is back in power. Um, but more importantly, kind of the age of the internet has really given younger Taiwanese uh, new access to history than their parents. Um, so, for example, a lot of millennials, uh, their parents might not have necessarily learned about the white terror or martial law because that wasn't taught in textbooks before the year 2000. But for people, uh, you know, kind of born in the you know 80s and 90s who grew up uh, with the internet, they had access to learning all about uh, kind of the KMT's past atrocities. Uh, and that, you know, beyond just in-school learning, kind of access to that information has also very much changed the way that uh, younger Taiwanese are politicized. Is this history still used as an attack against the KMT? Like, could you hear someone saying, don't vote KMT, never... They'll never forget the white terror. Oh, absolutely. Because, you know, it, it's interesting because, you know, in, in how many, uh, when we think of a kind of decolonial uh, processes and kind of decolonization, uh, Taiwan is one of the uh, few places in the world where the former colonizing party is still a major political party. Uh, and a lot of the KMT's assets only recently were seized. A lot of their assets were taken, were, 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 um, kind of uh, gained during the authoritarian era. Uh, and, you know, that, that upsets a lot of people. What, what kind of assets? Oh, land, money, uh, own ownership mm. over, uh, you know, uh, Taiwanese companies. Um, the KMT used to be referred to as the richest political party of the world because it owned everything. Um, and, and that's why, uh, and, you know, to some degree, when we talk about traditional justice, you know, uh, in Taiwan, you, you, you know, the KMT is still uh, seen by a lot of people on the pro-Taiwan side of the spectrum as not being held ac accountable enough for their past actions um, uh, or not enough has been done, not just to, you know, Taiwanese who suffered, but also to indigenous groups in Taiwan. Uh, and then, but that, you know, getting into indigenous uh, politics versus kind of uh, Han uh, um, Taiwanese politics versus uh, Han, who came over with the KMT politics, is a whole other long discussion. Yeah, of course. Uh, so my last question is more general. I'm curious if there are any tropes that you just find pretty annoying or just dishonest when it comes to writing about Taiwan and China relations. Uh, th there must be some. Yeah, so if, you know, there's there's a lot of kind of big. Uh, I I have I made a, a a post on Twitter a year ago called a uh, Taiwan Bingo, uh, or it was it was like a bad 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 cliches inaccuracies bingo, uh, where it's like uh, the things you see in reporting on Taiwan all the time that 
kind of don't really do justice to how Taiwan kind of actually exists. So, so you know, common ones, you know, th- things like the DPP being portrayed as a pro-independence party or Tsai being pro-independence. Uh, there's a lot of easy data points to point to how that's not necessarily true. Uh, a lot of discussion about Taiwan begins with the KMT's arrival, because that's a very kind of China-centric way of looking at Taiwanese history, uh, is nothing happened in Taiwan before 1945. Like, nothing happened. Just the KMT showed up one day, and boom, now you have Taiwanese history. And that's very frustrating, because that kind of erases Taiwan's long history of, of being colonized, uh, and kind of the early developments of kind of Taiwan's complex identity and culture. Um and you have more, you know, kind of specific wordings. Like, for example, when, when someone refers to mainland China, uh, mainland to who? Uh, because if you're in Taiwan and you don't consider Taiwan to be a part of China, then you don't consider China to be the mainland. Uh, and if you are pro-China, then you do consider it to be mainland. But, you know, the word mainland itself is also a bit of a China-centric uh, term. Uh, and, you know, a lot of just kind of our vocabulary... Uh, when we discuss Taiwan, still uh, a lot, you know, China scholars tend to still be kind of a bit China centric when we when we discuss Taiwan. Um, but besides those, I mean, it's uh, you still and when it comes to like headlines, you know, uh, Taiwan can't do anything without it, you know, quote unquote, angering China or to Beijing's ire. Like every headline about Taiwan is like Taiwan did something to Beijing's ire uh, or or Taiwan did something. China is upset. Uh, and it's very frustrating when that becomes the main headline over and over and over again, where there is no Taiwan story that is not being centered around China, um, which, you know, is is frustrating because there's so much that Taiwan can tell us that has absolutely nothing to do with China. Uh, you know, and, there, you know, of course, there are stories that China needs to be brought into discussion or there are when it's a cross strait story. Of course, you have to talk about China. But, for example, like Taiwan's mass diplomacy was incredibly successful. Uh, but the headlines were Taiwan, you know, you know, beats COVID at the anger of China. And it's like, well, 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 that didn't have anything to do with China. You know, Taiwan's ability to, to, to succeed had a lot to do with its own democratic institutions. I think that's a good way to end. Uh, thank you, Lev. I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much for having me. It was, it was this was a lot of fun to do. Yeah.